And Lord, I pray that even now as we open up Your Word, that You would give us soft and tender hearts, even as we learned last week, that You would help us to be like children, like little toddlers who are humble and who are dependent upon You. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that embrace Your truth, especially with a message like this, Father, that really deals with an issue that is on the forefront, should be on the forefront of every single human being. And that is the issue of eternal life. And so, Father, give us ears to hear and hearts to embrace what your word says, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22 is our passage for this morning. And I want to read that text for us to begin. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 22. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. This is the word of God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. What we've been seeing uh, here in the Gospel of Mark, if you remember, specifically even in the previous passage, that Jesus took his disciples to the school of children in our previous passage to show them the importance of children and how children illustrate those qualities, those characteristics of those who enter into the kingdom, namely humble dependence. And now in our passage this morning, we see, the, we see yet another contrast again in Mark. If childlike humility is what gets you into the kingdom of God, what this young man who comes to Jesus possesses is a worldly religious pride that becomes the greatest hindrance for him entering the kingdom of God. Worldly religious pride. Now as our Lord dialogues with this young man here in verses 17 through 22, we're going to learn a few things from the master evangelist himself. How Jesus talked to sinners who were lost and talked to people about the kingdom and the gospel. We're going to learn a few things from the master evangelist. Because you see, our Lord, as we've been seeing in the Gospel of Mark, is, is always focused on His mission, isn't He? Always focused on the, the things of the kingdom, of this future kingdom that He's going to usher in. He's always calling people to attention, people's attention to that future reality of that kingdom, where He is the King. The Gospel of the Kingdom was the mission of our Lord. And I hope that you're mindful this morning... That if Jesus is your Lord, and if Jesus is your Savior, 
then the gospel of the kingdom is your mission field right now. Not only is this the year of evangelism in our church, I think it's easy for us to forget that, that this is the year of evangelism here at Calvary, but making disciples is our central occupation as believers here in this world. We are in this world, but not of the world, but we are here to speak forth the gospel of Christ to people who are lost. And I hope that you're mindful of this. Now, I know that this is a challenge, given the type of opposition that we're seeing right now to Christianity. I'm mindful that this is a challenge, given the type of degree of evil that we're seeing in our world. I don't know if you ever read the Babylon Bee. It's a a site that basically publishes satire articles on religion and current events and politics. It's fictional. It's designed for laughs, okay, for humor. And last week, they put out a funny article titled, Movie Actually Murders Puppies to Teach That Murdering Puppies is Bad. That was the title of the article, and there's a picture of a puppy on the front of this article with somebody pointing a gun to the head of the puppy. It reads like this, and remember, this is satire. This is not real, okay? Quote, Netflix is embroiled in controversy yet again with its new documentary, Puppy Murder, a show where the director kills puppies to teach you that murdering puppies is bad. The movie is just two hours of puppies being brutally murdered on screen, sending a powerful message to the viewer about just how bad puppy murder is, from getting shot and stabbed to being run over with a steamroller and the inspiring climactic scene where a puppy is dropped into a volcano the movie unequivocally and powerfully shows the brutal reality of puppy murder. I thought about just making a documentary where I didn't actually murder puppies to make the point, but it was just it just wasn't powerful enough, said the director. I drew on my own experiences, having observed puppy murder a number of times and decided I would just drop anvils and pianos on them and stuff so that you could see how terrible puppy murder is. Many people spoke up against the film but were labeled triggered conservatives and scandal mongers since they obviously just didn't get the message of the film which very clearly teaches that puppy murder is bad. The show has been a big success among psychopaths and future mass murderers and we'll see a sequel called Baby Murder next fall, end quote. Ouch. You get the point, right? They're obviously playing off of the controversial film that Netflix put out called Cuties, right? Where a lot of the criticism has been dismissed and downplayed by the director and others of this film by saying that the film is helpful in that it it exposes us, the audience, to the dangers of child pornography. So therefore, it's helpful. How is it helpful for us? How is the message sent to us that child pornography is wrong? How do they want to teach us that? By showing us child pornography. By featuring it. And even by using real little girls to exploit them and show show us about the dangers of not engaging your kids with topics like that. This is the twisted world, beloved, that we live in. 
Where good is called evil, and evil is called good. But can I remind us this morning? This is the world. This is the perverted, wicked world. The dark world that Jesus came into the world to reach. This world. In fact, such were some of us. 1 Corinthians 6. And this is the mission to reach this world that Jesus has left for us. You think that God was surprised about the things that are happening in our world right now? No surprise. God has called us out of the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love so that now we go out into the world and we seek to reach people for Himself, for Christ, to make His Son known. And this is what Jesus did when He came into the world. And here we have another example of that, of a self-righteous young man who comes to Jesus and Jesus is going to minister the gospel of the kingdom to this young, arrogant Self-righteous young man. And as we look at this particular dialogue with our Lord and yet another sinner who is lost, I want us to identify three diagnostic questions here from the master evangelism. Three diagnostic questions that we must help people consider as we witness to them. This is our mission field. And I think as we watch Jesus interact with this young man, we learn a lot about how to engage somebody And key themes that we ought to be bringing before them when we share the gospel of the kingdom with them. The first question to consider is this. Do you have a right view of Jesus? Do you have a right view of Jesus? This is always the single greatest issue here in our world. World religions have been created. Human philosophies, destructive human philosophies have been created because they are deviations of the person and the work of Christ. We have to have an accurate picture of Jesus as defined by His Word. Look at verse 17. As He was setting out on a journey, this is Jesus, the Lord and His disciples, if you remember, are going to resume their final journey through Judea. They're headed to Jerusalem for Passion Week. Chapters 11 through 16 of Mark are going to record the last week, Passion Week, for us. So they're setting out on a journey. Verse 17 And a man ran up to Jesus and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What a question, huh? What a question that this young man asks in haste, running up to Jesus, which tells you that he wasn't an older guy, right? He was a young man. He runs in haste up to Jesus. This is a matter, obviously, of utmost urgency for this young man. Who knows what prompted this eagerness, this sense of urgency in the heart of this young man. He's come to the point of desperation where he's asking questions about the meaning of life and the state of his soul. Think about that. You know, there are people who get to this point. Or maybe something tragic in their life happens. Something difficult happens, something critical happens in their life, maybe with somebody that they love, and they begin to think about life beyond this world. They're shaken on the inside, and they begin to ask questions, deep questions about the meaning of life and the purpose of why they're here on earth. That's how God uses 
events in our lives to get us to have, have our eyes open to the real deep questions that concern us as human beings. Maybe you remember coming to this point in your own experience. You remember that day or that season of life where all of a sudden you were thinking about those deep questions prior to coming to know Jesus? What am I doing here? What is my purpose? Is there a God? And what is He like? And why did He create me if He indeed exists? We've all been there. I got to this point when I was 17 years old. My mother had been murdered at the age of seven. And from the age of seven to 17, I remember my heart progressing from, from explicit hatred toward God and toward others, bitterness towards others, to then indifference towards people, and even to the point of just reaching this sense of, of just loneliness and hopelessness, and even got to the point at the age of 17 of contemplating suicide. Because I didn't know what I was doing here. Life had been so bad. And no matter what pursuits I had gone after, everything seemed to me like meaningless, purposeless. Why even exist? Mary, you remember that season of life for you. It seems that this young man, at least at first glance, seems to have come to this point. Here he comes to the right person asking the right question, the ultimate question. And notice the posture in verse 17. His posture as he comes to Jesus. It says in verse 17 that he knelt before Jesus. He has a sense of respect for Jesus. He admires Jesus. He sees him as a good teacher. Notice, he refers to our Lord as good teacher. He, at least at first glance, comes to our Lord like he's a poor beggar who has a need. And he's coming to Jesus for answers. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Man, this is like the dream evangelistic opportunity, isn't it? You ever share the gospel with somebody and they ask you probing questions like that? I remember being on a, on a plane once traveling somewhere and striking up a conversation over the course of the trip with this particular person. And at one point they asked something along these lines, well, okay then, how can I be saved then? <laughs> like, yes! Woo! Living the dream, baby, right? I mean, that's the moment right there. I thought I was in heaven, right? So then I gave them the Bible's answer. And guess what? They didn't like it. It wasn't a, a good ending to this. They didn't like what I had to say, and the cost of giving up their sin was too high, and that was the end of that. They rejected Christ. But ever have a moment like that where, where people are asking, somebody's asking a probing question like that? Don't you wish that more people today, brothers and sisters, were concerned about their souls asking questions such as these? Don't you wish that people would get underneath the superficial, the trivial, the mundane of life, mundane stuff of life, and actually care for their souls. I pray for that often. Oh God, with all of this stuff happening in our city and in our state and in our country and our world, can you please move in the hearts of people to get them to open their eyes to their spiritual plight and where they're going to spend eternity? Don't you wish for this? 
You see, sin is so alluring, so promising of lasting pleasure that people are so comfortable in it. In it. They've been lulled into spiritual sleep and they're deceived by their sin and they're not even asking questions like these. I believe getting to this people to this point is the single greatest reason for God bringing all of this about in 2020. So that you would consider where you will be spending the rest of eternity beyond this earthly life. Especially here in America. In this once comfortable, secure, safe America. Not so much anymore. You can't take for granted the things that you used to take for granted in America. I'm not saying that mockingly. I'm just saying, brothers and sisters, we see it all over our country. People put their trust in a country. People put their trust in their patriotism. People put their trust in individuals, political parties. God is stripping us of that right now so that we would put our trust in Him and Him alone. What we once took for granted is no longer a given, you understand. And now people must consider the reality and now the fear of death. It was always there, by the way. The Bible has always talked about death as inevitable, as something that is going to happen. We all have an invitation with physical death. But people forget about that because of a comfortable state of mind. Complacency, passivity. There's a virus that you can't avoid, and that virus is that of sin that leads to death. I don't care who you are right now listening. You're going to die. And the reason why you're going to die is because you are a sinner by nature. And you prove it by the way that you live and the way that you think. And your motivations that are not God-centered. And by your own self-worship rather than God worshiping your Creator and giving Him glory with all of your life. You prove that you are a sinner by nature, by the way that you live. And the Bible speaks about this. Hebrews 9.27. That verse tells us that it is appointed for men to die once And after this comes judgment. We're all going to die. And when you die physically, you will face God. Think about that right now. Think about the fact that you are not going to exist forever and ever on this earth. You're going to die and then you're going to face your maker. And the reason every person will die is because every single person is a sinner. And what does sin bring? Death. Romans 6.21 tells us that the outcome of sin is death. Romans 6.23, the wages, the payment of sin is death. That's the paycheck that sin will give you at the end of life apart from Jesus. Physical death and eternal death forever. Death comes to us all. The question that this young man is asking is, a, is an important one because maybe he's realizing that to whatever extent. But listen, 
If you are hearing this right now and you are not right with God, the least of your worries is this earthly life. The greater that your concern should be, what will happen to me after I physically die? Where will my soul spend eternity? Have you asked yourself that? You see, there is life after death, after this earthly life. There is life. And the question is, where will you be? Will you be in a place called heaven? Or will you be in a place called hell? There are only two ways. There's no purgatory. No middle ground. There's heaven or hell. And each of us will be in one of those places or the other. Depending on what we do with Christ, as we're going to learn. There's a devastating parable that the Lord Jesus preached once in Luke chapter 12. Go there with me. Luke 12. Just sober, sobering. Luke 12 and verse 15. Then he said to them, Jesus said to the crowds, speaking to the crowds here, teaching the crowds, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. It's a warning against materialism there that Jesus is giving to the crowds. And he illustrates it. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. Here's a very successful, prosperous man. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? I mean, that's like a whole nother level of prosperity, right? You don't even know what to do with all of your possessions. Then he said, verse 18, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and goods. What does he do? Rather than wisely investing this, right? He hoards what he has. Rather than sharing it, he is greedy and covetous. And then verse 19, and I will say to my soul, so You have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, live a worry-free life, a comfortable life, a secure life, enjoying all of your goodies. Just be normal. Just be normal. In verse 20, don't miss this. You look in there, verse 20. But God said to him, you fool, you fool, this very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? Answer someone else. He can't take one penny with him is God's point. And he's a fool. And here's the punchline from our Lord in verse 21. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Wow. Wow. So you never know when your time is up. You never know when your time is up. Maybe you have a successful career. You're very occupied pursuing your education. You have all of these plans ahead of you. All of that. Maybe you're young and when you're young, you think you'll live forever. That's just a part of youthfulness. You think you're going to be around forever more, right? And then bam, 
One day, one evening, one morning, your time on earth is up. God says it's time for you to be done. And he takes you. See, let's not be foolish. Don't be a fool. If you don't know Christ this morning, don't be a fool. Don't be like that man who arrogantly is planning ahead, thinking that he's got his whole life ahead of him, and then one day God calls him out of this world. Do you know where you're going to spend eternity today? If you were to physically die tonight, where would you wake up? Would you wake up in heaven with Jesus in his presence? Or would you wake up in a place called hell where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched? It's real. So the question that this young man asks is a very good one. Now, how does our Lord answer him? Notice in verse 18, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Okay, time out, okay? If somebody were to ask you that question, wouldn't you like, you know what, this is the the opportunity of a lifetime, baby. Let's pray right now. Before you change your mind about this, let's pray the sinner's prayer, young man. Instead, what does Jesus do? He asks him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What is Jesus doing here? Is he avoiding the man's question? Is Jesus actually saying more importantly to this young man, I'm not good? Is he correcting him? And of course we know the answer is no. The fact is Jesus is good, isn't he? He is good. In fact, if Jesus, the Bible tells us, Jesus is perfect and blameless and sinless. If there is someone who is good, it is Christ. If he is not good, but sinful and evil, he is not qualified to be redeemer and to die for sin. But why does Jesus correct him? The answer is that he wants to make a point to this young man about himself, about Jesus' person, about Jesus' identity. Keep reading. Notice he says, no one is good except God alone. And the response of this young man should have been, of course, that you are God. Isn't this the primary purpose of the Gospel of Mark? To show that Jesus is more than just a man, that he is God, and therefore he is Redeemer. He is coming to suffer and die for the sins of the world precisely because he is the God-man. And he qualifies to be Redeemer. It's the point of the the Gospels, all four of them. Jesus is God, and he's going to the cross as the God-man, and he is the one who can save you from your sins and from the coming judgment. It's essential to saving faith in order for one to be saved. Listen to me. To believe that Jesus is God. Not a God. Not a downgraded version of God. Not one God amongst many. Not a great moral teacher. Not some great prophet. Not some loving little man. Warm and fuzzy, cushiony little man. He is, Jesus is God. He's God. 
You think this is something to take for granted these days, beloved? I was reading some eye-opening stats the other day by Ligonier Ministries. Listen to this. In a survey of Americans, 31% of people surveyed say science disproves the Bible. 33% say gender is a choice. 62% say God accepts all religions. 62% say the Holy Spirit is a force, not a person. 66% say people are good by nature. Staggering statistics. And for our purposes here, listen to this. 75% say God first created Jesus. Jesus is a created being. Even if the greatest created being, that is ancient Gnosticism now in another in new clothing. And then this. 38% say Jesus was not God. Jesus was not God. What's the problem with that? Pastor Kempis, I mean, this sounds like theological hair splitting. I mean, does it really matter if Jesus is God? Yes, it does. It absolutely does. If Jesus is a created being, he is not fully God, and therefore he cannot save you from your sins and from God's coming wrath against your sin. But the Bible is clear that Jesus is God himself. He is God incarnate. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaking of the eternal Son of God, Titus 2.13 says about Jesus that He is our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, God the Father says about Jesus, the eternal Son of God, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The Father refers to Jesus as God. Listen to me. Don't settle for a counterfeit type of Jesus, a diminished version of Jesus, where people say that he is not God. Jesus is God. And if you want to be saved from your sins, you must affirm that he is God, because if he is not, he cannot save you from your sins. That's what the Bible teaches. There's only one way for you to have eternal life and his name is jesus god a very god he is the god man that's why the bible says that there is one mediator between god and man the man christ jesus christ is the only way not roman catholicism not the catholic priest or the pope not Joseph Smith, not the spirits of transcendental meditation, not Buddha, not the many myriad gods of Hinduism, not the false Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses, who is not Jesus, a Jesus who is not God, but the greatest created being. No, not your parents, not church going, not good works. Not anything else. There's one mediator between God and men, and his name is Jesus. Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus says of himself, I am the way, 
Definite article there, the, that little word the is a definite article in the original. That means that he is identifying exclusively himself as the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me, says Jesus. There aren't many ways to get to heaven, as the self-proclaimed Oprah Winfrey tells us. Only Jesus. Sorry, Oprah. Or not. The Lord Jesus Christ is exclusively, unapologetically, and forever the only way of salvation from your sins and God's coming righteous judgment against your sin. Do you have an accurate view of Jesus? That He is the God-man. That He is the only hope for salvation. This young man needed to understand who was before him. God of very God. Now building on this, a second diagnostic question is this for us to consider. Do you have a right view of yourself? Do you have a right view of yourself? If people don't understand their spiritual plight, their problem, they won't embrace the Savior. And this is what our Lord gets at here with this young man. Notice in verse 19. He puts a pretty high standard on this young man as to how he might inherit eternal life. Let's see if you could do it, young man. Verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder, commandment number 6. Do not commit adultery, commandment number 7. Do not steal, commandment number 8. Do not bear false witness, commandment number 9. And the Lord Jesus changes the wording for the next one. Do not defraud, which I think is a rewording of commandment number 10 concerning coveting. Perhaps Jesus, with that rewarding, is is pinpointing the young man's specific sin. And then he adds, honor your father and mother, commandment number five. Interestingly, all of these commandments, think about this, have to do with love for your neighbor. If you know the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments have to do with our vertical relationship with God and our love for God, and the latter ones with our horizontal love for our neighbor, our relationship to our neighbors. Why does Jesus focus on, on most of the commandments that have to do with love for others? And I think the answer is this, that moral people like this young man, as we're going to see, tend to focus on piety toward God and oftentimes tend to neglect love for other people. Isn't this a problem for all of us, by and large, to one degree or another? There's so often a a false dichotomy in our supposed piety before God, our vertical relationship with God, and yet we're in conflict with others unreconciling relationship with others, indifferent to others, avoiding people altogether, and yet we boast of a great relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And our horizontal relationships are a mess. And we don't even care. Because after all, as long as it's me, me and God, we're good. Who cares about how I'm treating my brothers and sisters or not loving non-believers? And yet, What the Bible tells us again and again is that a consistent and growing love for others flows from, is fueled by a consistent and growing love for God. This is why 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God 
for God is love. If we belong to God and have experienced His love for us, we'll love others. Now, the thing we can't miss here is that in shooting off some of the Ten Commandments, the Lord Jesus is bringing the full weight of the law upon this young man. This young man doesn't have a right view of himself in the light of who God is. He doesn't understand this. And so Jesus brings the law to bear upon him because the law was given to show us the holiness of God and our utter inability to obey God's law perfectly. Galatians 3.24 says, Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So the the law is like a tutor, like a schoolmaster that shows us the holiness of God and our utter inability to keep perfectly the law of God. And so what are we driven to do? We're driven because of our need and our spiritual plight then to come to Jesus Christ, realizing that we cannot keep this burden ourselves of the law. There's one who has fulfilled it, and his name is Jesus, you see. The law is our tutor, our schoolmaster, showing us the holiness of God and our need for Jesus so that we run to Christ who can be our Savior. Remember, his question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the Lord's and the Bible's answer is, keep God's standard, keep God's law. But not just these commandments, all of them, says the Word of God. Question, how well must I keep God's law? Is it a, does God grade on a curve? Is there a percentage that I should keep? How good is good enough to get me into heaven? Answer, you must keep the law 100%. Perfectly. Perfect adherence to the law. Perfect obedience to the law. Perfect keeping of God's holy law. That's the standard. James 2.10 For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of all. It's like going out of bounds on a basketball court. No matter where you go out of bounds on that basketball court, even in the corner of the court, no matter where you go out of bounds, you're out of bounds. Turnover. Change of possession. That's the law for us. Suppose for a minute, just suppose, this is impossible, but suppose even if, even if you could go your whole life and sin just one time, just one time, just one sinful motivation, just one sinful thought, just one misplaced priority, just one time, if you could go your whole life and just sin one time, listen to me, you would fall short of the glory of God. It's a heavy burden, heavy weight that we cannot bear up under. This is how holy and pure and perfect and blameless our Heavenly Father is, our Creator is. One sin, and you cannot dwell in His presence. We cannot even begin to understand that. 
because we don't understand the holiness of God. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 5.48, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God's standard is that you be perfect like Him if you are to be in His presence externally, internally, in sins of omission and sins of commission. You must be perfect all the way around, perfectly obeying all of God's commands, never ignoring any of His commands, always watching your heart, never having a sinful motive or misplaced priority. Perfection. Absolute holiness. None of us can measure up. That's why Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. To fall short means to, to miss the target or the mark. But it's not just that we've missed, just, just missed the mark. A little to the right, a little to the left. It's that you shot the arrow the opposite direction. That's how short you've fallen of the glory of God. That's how great of sinners we are. Hear me. You are not good enough. And it is foolish for any of us to ever think that we can stand justified before a holy God that way. We're not good enough. Just suppose. Just suppose that we were to drive over to the beach right now. Okay? And I asked you, okay, maybe one of you who is in the best shape than any of us. Okay, I want you to do your absolute best here at the beach. And with one running leap, making maximum effort, I want you to run and then land on Catalina Island. How possible is that? I ask you. Impossible. There's no way that that can... It's foolish. It's like, Pastor Campus, you couldn't have come up with a better illustration. The point is that it's impossible for us to be holy like God. To be perfect like Him. As foolish as that is, that's the way it is with people thinking they can actually work their way to heaven by their good works and find favor with God through their good deeds, through their external religion, their church going, etc. You can never be good enough to get into heaven, to receive eternal life. This was the conclusion of that great reformer, Martin Luther, that he arrived at. He was a Catholic monk who could never find true peace, even in in pietous isolation and in refraining from all external worldliness, all external stimuli to sin, all external restrictions. What Martin Luther found was that sin resided within him and he could never be righteous in himself. He needed an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of himself found in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Christ. Don't believe the lie from hell that there are good people. Jesus is making this precise point to this young man. You are not a good person. You see, many in our society think that they are fundamentally good people. More and more, the thinking is that the answers lie within ourselves. And all we need to do is activate our inner goodness to reach our full potential through whatever stimuli This is to live in a state of deception. 
to be hopelessly lost. Because if you don't have a right view of yourself as a sinner in the hands of an angry God because of his righteous judgment toward you apart from Jesus, then you have no hope because you don't understand that you are spiritually sick and you need the divine healer who is Jesus Christ, the God-man, the only Redeemer, the only Savior. The Bible tells us that there is none righteous, not even one, Romans 3.10. There are none who understand. There are none who seek for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none righteous, not even one. We're not good people. We are sinners. And unless we repent of our sins, we turn away from our sin and put our trust in Jesus and are clothed in His righteousness, there is no hope for eternal life for any of us. No matter what you're earthly accomplishments, no matter what your earthly riches are, no matter how talented you are, no matter how capable you may be, apart from Jesus, you are nothing. You're headed for a place that you don't want to be at. Notice sadly in verse 20, that this young man didn't have a right view of himself before God. The text says in verse 20, he said to Jesus, teacher, no longer notice, says, good teacher right okay remove that i don't want any more doctrinal conversations here teacher i have kept all of these things from my youth up wow what pride what spiritual arrogance what self-deception that this young man had I mean, taking him at face value, he was so deceived that he actually believed that he was okay. What a terrible place to be. To not know that you are desperately sick so that you might seek the the help of the divine physician, the Lord Jesus Christ. That may be some of you listening today who fall into this category. You're not in Christ And today I would say to you, you need to see yourself rightly. You need to understand and acknowledge that you are a broken and hopelessly lost sinner who cannot save yourself. And you need to plead with God that he would have mercy on you and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when you can receive eternal life through Jesus Christ. By the mercy of God. Thirdly, I want us to consider today a third diagnostic question. Do you have a right view of the world? Do you have a right view of the world? We see here how this young man made a choice. He made a choice. He had worldly idols that kept him back from following Jesus. Notice in verse 21, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. This is amazing. I want to challenge us again with something that we've seen in the life of our Lord again and again and again. Notice verse 21, looking at him. The sense is that Jesus gazed intently into this young man's eyes. Here's a hopelessly lost sinner. And the sense is that our Lord fixed his eyes on this young man as if he was looking into his very heart. And the text says that Jesus felt a love for this young man. 
It isn't just about waxing eloquent with the truth, brothers and sisters. It's about genuinely asking God for a supernatural love for people who are lost in this world. And remembering that such were some of us, so that God gives us grace to love people out in our world today. Because the reason why they're doing what they're doing is because they don't know Jesus. They need to be rescued from the domain of darkness. That is where they dwell. And that should grieve us. And we should love people like our Savior here. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Here again, we see the compassion of our Savior. I mean, if you and I would have been here talking to this young man, I don't know about you, but I would have been frustrated with this holier-than-thou young man, right? Who doesn't even understand his need. I would have snapped at him probably. Like, you know what? You're arrogant. That's your problem, dude. Look at the way that Jesus deals with him. He loves him. Mark wants us to know. Mark wants us to know under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, look at your servant Savior. He loves people. And therefore, please note, he loves him him so much that he wants him to see his sin so that he seeks the Savior, right? Rather than pat him on the back, Jesus goes for the jugular for that pet sin that this young man is not seeing and that will keep him from inheriting eternal life. Because he doesn't see the fact that he's a sinner by nature and he's got an idol of worship, you see. Jesus is going to call him out on that with the truth because he loves him. Because he loves him. And what was that particular sin? It was a sinful materialism. Apparently he possessed much. Look at verse 22. He was one who owned much property. Much property. He's a wealthy, rich young man who has a problem of idolatry with regards to his possessions, his materialism, right? And notice what Jesus says. One thing you lack. Go. And sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What powerful words. What a powerful challenge. You want eternal life? Give what you love most that you're elevating above God. If you want to receive that which is treasure in heaven, which is infinite, much greater than he has here on earth. Give it up. Gotcha. Gotcha, right? It was like Jesus had poked at the sore spot for him. Here is his idol of worship. It isn't that that was the only sin that this young man had. Jesus was cut into the chase, right? Saying, this is what, on the, on the, on underneath that, what your, your words, this is what you're struggling with. This is what is keeping you from eternal life. You have an idol of worship, and that is called materialism. Your love of money. Notice his response in verse 22. But at these words, he was saddened. That is distressed, gloomy, sorrowful. We say, well, that's good. That's good. No. This is worldly sorrow here. There's worldly sorrow and then there's godly sorrow. There's worldly sorrow where you just feel sorry that you got caught where you just feel sorry about the cost and you're not willing to give up your sin. And then there's godly sorrow that leads to giving up your sin and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. This is worldly sorrow right here. How do we know? Because he walks away, doesn't he? He went away 
grieving. Why? For he owned much property. He loved worldly materialism more than wanting to follow Jesus Christ. He wasn't willing to make the commitment. Again, it wasn't that that this young man only struggled with this particular sin. It's that he was self-righteous and had so compartmentalized his life that he didn't even see his sin and his sinful blind spots that kept him from eternal life. And Jesus was calling him out on it. Many people who don't know Christ are like this. They fancy themselves as being religious, as being in compa- better in comparison to others, as not struggling with certain sins that others struggle with. I'm better than that other person. We measure ourselves by how we compare to other people, not before God. But listen to me, God looks past all of that and he knows each of our hearts. Just like this rich young man, we can't fool Jesus. We can't fool God. We can't hide one sin from him. It's like trying to find that, that one crevice, that one hidden area where all those roaches are, right? And then you take a flashlight and lo and behold, there they are right there. God's word is like that. That's why we need daily exposure to the word of God. The word of God, it searches the soul. It exposes the inner intentions of our hearts. Hebrews 4.12, God through his word is able to expose the thoughts and intentions of our hearts and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Jesus, the personified word, the light of the world had exposed this young man's pet sin, pet sin that he wasn't willing to give up. What about us? What about us? Before we dismiss this particular sin of materialism by thinking to yourself, well, I'm not rich. So this doesn't apply to me. Think again. Think again. In comparison to most of the world, I want to remind us today that even the quote unquote poorest amongst us are filthy rich in comparison to most countries, especially third world countries. We are filthy rich. I got to see this during my travels. How in most countries that I went to, brothers and sisters, especially third world countries, $5 a Starbucks coffee. We can't even pay for a Starbucks coffee with $5 these days, right? $5 a Starbucks mocha could pay for a family for a whole week to be fed. A family of five to seven. In some countries, two weeks with $5. In some countries, four to five weeks we could feed a whole family with $5. We are filthy rich in our country. Comparatively speaking, with the rest of the world. And the warning to us in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10 is... The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. The love of money, not the making of money, not the planning ahead and being wise, not making money so that you will help others. The love of it, worshiping it, idolizing it, elevating it above God, is a sin that keeps some people from inheriting the kingdom Remember what Jesus said in Mark 8, 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? See, for some people, this is the pet sin, right? Materialism. But for others, it's a sinful relationship. A sinful secret sin. A state of deception. Sexual immorality. Idolizing career or success. Having to go uh, to let go of worldly friends. Worldly influences that are bringing you down. On and on the list goes. We idolize. We worship things above God. We put... We put people and things in the throne room of our hearts where only God belongs. That's hopelessly sad place to be. Love for the world will keep you from following Jesus and from receiving eternal life. That's why Scripture warns in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What does he mean? Don't love people and try to reach people for Christ? Try to run away from California to a safer place? No. What he means is don't be intimate with the world so as to adopt the world's thinking and values and ways. That's what he means. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the world, the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. See, we place so much stock in the things of this world, don't we? So much value. But the world is undoing itself. But for those who, unlike this rich young ruler, turn away from their sin and turn to Christ and follow Him, they inherit eternal life. I pray that this morning you would be one of those people if you're not in Christ. If you're not right with God, that you would come to a place where you are right with God. You seek God's face today. That you would stop living for yourself and live for God. And that begins by you receiving the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ alone who came to die and pay for your sins and rose from the dead three days later, victorious over sin and death. Trust Christ today. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that you will be saved. Trust in Christ that you would inherit eternal life. Forsake the passing pleasures of this world, those pet sins that maybe others don't know about, but God knows what's going on there. Quit living for yourself, creature of God. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I conclude with a great quote by J.C. Ryle who comments about this text. Listen. There is no repentance in the grave. There is no conversion after the last breath is drawn. Now is the time to believe in Christ and to lay hold of eternal life. Now is the time to turn from darkness to light and to make our calling and election sure. If we leave this world refusing to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, we will rise in the same condition on resurrection morning and find it would have been better for us if we had not been born. End quote. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be rescued from your sin and God's coming judgment through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, Help us not to be so earthly-minded that we don't think about where we'll be for eternity. For those of us who have eternal life, Father, help us to remember why we have been saved. What is eternal life? 
that they might know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Lord, to have eternal life begins even in this life and that we get to know you in an intimate way through Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with you. We have a connection with you. You are our Father. You allow us and give us endurance and wisdom and perseverance in all of these trials that we're experiencing in this world. You are our Father. We go from enemies of yours to now children of yours. Help us to cherish eternal life that begins now and live joyfully and on mission for the sake of Christ's name we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.